Well, once again, welcome to Harvest and happy anniversary, four years, uh, big day. And uh, so today we just want to continue to do what we've been doing every Sunday for the last four years, which is dig into God's Word together. So grab your Bibles with me, and I want you to turn to Luke chapter 18 is where you can kind of start at. We're going to jump around a lot today as well. Um, we're kind of in this new series called Destroying Strongholds. And a couple of weeks ago, we started in 2 Corinthians looking at this idea that we are supposed to tear down the strongholds, the, the sinful uh, thoughts and, and, um, and the broken parts of the way we think and restore those with God's word instead. And so we're going to be looking throughout this entire series at different strongholds that are common uh, among our world today and how we can destroy those by the power of God's word and so, again, one of my goals in this series is just to load you up with tons and tons of Scripture related to each one of these strongholds so you have the weapons that you need to go to work for the Lord. And today's going to be no different than that. So I'm going to have a lot of Scripture on the screen for you. I'm going to give you a couple things there in the Gospels of Luke and John that we're going to touch on that you can actually flip to, um, and you can take tons of notes and catch up later on whatever you miss along the way. Today I want to talk about destroying comparison. Sinful comparison, to be specific, um, and I'm gonna. You'll see why I say that in just a moment. Um, you know, comparison is one of the things that we just naturally do as humans. Like nobody really had to teach you to do that. It's just kind of part of the human psyche and thought process. It's like we start looking at other people and other things, and we compare that to ourselves and to each other, and it's just part of what we do. And so, some comparison. You know, we have things where it's like, you know, why do they always get a better grade than me? Right? Some of you have had that in class before. Like, they're always at the top. Like, why? What is up with that? Or maybe it's, you know, Bob's new car is legit. And I'm still driving like this 10-year-old minivan over here. Like, I don't understand what's up with that. Um, if one more, if one more of my high school friends gets married before me, I'm going to scream. <laughs> I'm not like, pointing anybody out this morning. I'm just kind of throwing some stuff out, okay? Um, are they seriously on another vacation? That's like four this year. We haven't even been out of Missouri this year. And they're like on number four on the beach. Like what is going on? How on earth does she have time for a cooking blog, running the PTO, four kids, and her hair still looks amazing? Like I'm on day four of dry shampoo here, and this is just, it's not right. Any of those sound familiar to anybody? Is this, is this resonating for anyone today? And I think social media only exasperates the comparisons because we get to see this picture of other people's lives, but we get to see this, this you know, um, this perfectly cropped and, and manicured picture of their lives, and they're not showing us everything. They're only showing us the high points, right? And then we compare that to our low points, and we're like, oh, it's kind of like this picture. I got a picture here. We only see what's in the square. We don't see the rest of the stuff, right? That's what social media does for us. And it just exasperates this issue of comparison. I actually read a study this week. It said that Facebook, um, it, it, the study showed that Facebook has uh, been associated with lower self-esteem, poorer mental health, and greater body shame because of comparison, specifically because of sinful comparison. President Theodore Roosevelt once said that comparison is the thief of joy. I think that's true a lot of the times, but it's not true all of the times. So today I want us to kind of look at and differentiate comparison 
and how we can use it for good and not allow it to be a sinful issue in our lives. Thankfully, God's word has a lot to say about this, and so we're going to use that today to our advantage. Here's kind of the big thought I want to pull together from all these scriptures. Sinful comparison steals my contentment in Christ. Sinful comparison steals my contentment in Christ. All right, so the first thing we need to do is to discern sinful comparison. We have to figure out what it is, right? So let me just start with a general definition that I just pulled from the dictionary of comparison so we're kind of on the same page. Comparison is this. An examination of two or more items to establish, establish similarities and dissimilarities, okay? So the, the, um, <clears throat> the examination of two or more items to see how they're similar and how they're not similar. That's comparison. Not necessarily a bad thing in and of itself. The Bible has two categories for comparison. I'm going to start with the first one. I'm going to call it sanctified comparison, okay? And probably the best verse to jump in on sanctified comparison is from 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Paul writes this. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ, okay? Now, in order to imitate someone, you first have to compare, right? Like, I have to see how, what you're doing and what I'm doing, how you're different than me, and if I'm going to change and imitate you, I have, there has to be some comparison that's going on. So here, Paul's telling us to do this, so obviously it can't always be sinful, and he says, but notice, he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. There's the key. The comparing, the imitating, is not just of Paul in general, it's of Christ-likeness in Paul. That's what he's calling the people to. He's not just saying, imitate me. He's saying, imitate Christ in me. As you see Christ working in and through my life, imitate that. Compare yourself to that. And let's move in that direction. In Hebrews 6, 12, the writer says this. It says, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators, there it is again, of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So again, the, the writer there is just encouraging us to be imitators of other people who are walking in the faith, who are following God, who are, who are walking in the promises of the Lord, because they're walking in Christ. Let me give you some more. Titus 2.7. Paul says this to Titus. He says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity. Be a model of good works. So if, if Paul's telling Titus to be a model, that means he's expecting people to compare themselves to Titus and follow what he's doing. That's what a model, that's how a model works, right? And so here again, who's he being a model of? He's not just being a model of Titus. He's being a model of Christ for the believers that he is set to shepherd. Same thing with Timothy. Look at 1 Timothy 4.12. Paul says, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Set them an example. Set them an example of what? Of Christ so they can compare themselves and imitate what you're doing as you're walking in Christ. So all of these scriptures point us to that there is a way that we, we can use comparison, sanctified comparison, as a great biblical tool to grow in Christ and to grow in sanctification. This can be redeemed. It can be used for the glory of God in our lives. But it all hinges on what we're comparing to. The call is to compare ourselves to Christ 
either directly or as we see him in others. That's sanctified comparison. Now, the second category that we see in Scripture, I'm going to call sinful comparison. So let's dig into this for a second here. So I'm going to go all the way back to Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. Some of you will be familiar with this one. It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. So that's one of the Ten Commandments, right? Thou shall not covet, coming straight out of Exodus there. Covet means to desire. It means I want what you have. That's coveting. And before I can covet what you have, I first have to compare that what you have is better than what I have, right? And that's why I'm desiring. That's why I'm coveting it. And so it's a form of sinful comparison, which tells me that this whole comparing thing is not a new thing. It's not just a social media thing. This is an age-old problem that humanity has dealt with going all the way back to the very beginning. In fact, even before the Ten Commandments, let me point you to this one, Genesis chapter 4, we have the first two children of Adam and Eve, first two children born on the earth, Cain and Abel, and here's what happens. Verse 3, it says, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will not you be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So both brothers, they bring their offerings. God receives one. He does not receive the other. And Cain gets all bent out of shape because his offering wasn't good enough. And he gets angry. And God comes to him and he's like, why are you angry? He's angry because he's comparing himself to Abel. Like, well, God, this isn't fair. Like, you took his offering. Why didn't you take my offering? Right? And so he's got this comparison going on, which, again, points to me to the fact that sibling rivalry has always been a thing. Right? Like, like, first siblings right here, they're already at it. They're already comparing themselves to one another. This isn't just you and your sisters or brothers or your kids. And so, they're, again, Cain's comparing, so he gets angry over this. And look at God's response. This is so telling. He says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? In other words, this isn't a competition. You don't have to one-up your brother in order for me to regard your offering you just have to do well by me, the Lord. If you just keep your eyes on me, if you just do what's right by me, you too will be accepted. He says, but if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Which I think is a, a wise warning from the very beginning of Scripture that sinful comparison, if you engage in that, will take you down. And so, kind of on the antithesis of this, in the New Testament, Paul talks about it on the other side. In Galatians 6.4, he says this, But let each one test his own work, and his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. All right? So again, Paul's saying, listen, test your own work. Like, do your stuff and test that against the Lord, against Scripture, against Christ. Don't be tested against somebody else. They're not the standard. Why are you comparing what you're doing in your life to somebody else? That They're not the one you're going after. The standard is Christ. That's where we're headed. 
In James 3.16, he writes, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. So again, jealousy, selfish ambition, those are just, again, other forms of sinful comparison where I want or I'm not happy because somebody else has what I don't. In Philippians 2.3, says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Selfish ambition and conceit rely completely upon measuring others up. I can't be all conceited about how great I am if I don't have you to say, look how crappy he is. Right? Like, it, re- it requires comparison to have for this to happen. And notice what Paul says. He then flips and he says, don't do that. Instead, he says, be humble. And he goes on in that passage to say, be like Christ who was humble. That's the opposite of this whole sinful comparison thing. In 1 Corinthians 13, 4, says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. Human comparison breeds envy and boasting and arrogance and rudeness. All the things that are the opposite of love. And therefore, the opposite of Christ. That's why it's sinful. I've shared before, you know, as much as I hate running today, there was a time in my life where I was actually voluntarily on the track team in high school, if you can believe that. And I remember when we were running track that my coach would always tell us, he'd always, keep your eyes on the, yeah, okay, you got it, right? Like, keep your eyes, and what he was talking about was like, keep your eyes on the finish line, right? Like, Keep your goal ahead of you, know where you're going, stay focused on the goal, on the standard, what you're running towards. Well, a few years ago, there was one runner who learned exactly why this was so important. Um, and we actually, I actually have a little clip right here. Let's just watch this little clip. Take my word for it, there's a moral to this story. Yeah, it looked like a coronation for Tanche Pepio. He's getting the crowd, he wants the crowd to cheer his performance, and at the end he gets pipped. He gets pipped by Marin Simon of Washington. And you just can't do this kind of stuff, Lewis. You can, and you know, you see his face, and you know no one has to say anything. They don't have to explain it to him. He'll never make that mistake again. Ouch. See, the organ runner, he started looking around at all the other runners. He's like, oh, I got this. And he took his eyes off of the finish line. He took his eyes off of the goal. And he lost because of it. He lost the race. While the Washington runner kept his eyes focused on the standard the whole time. He kept his eyes focused on where he was going and what, and he just kept running as hard as he could towards the goal. You know, in a couple of different places, the Bible calls the Christian life a race. Hebrews 12 one and two is one of them. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. Christian friends, this is how we finish the race. This is how we win, is we keep our eyes looking 
to Jesus. He is the goal. He is the standard. When we start looking around at everyone else, we get lost and we miss it. The race that we're running as Christians is not a race against others. It's simply a race to get to Jesus as much and as fast as we can. And so we run towards him so we can grow in Christ-likeness. When I'm looking at Christ, when I'm comparing myself to Christ, I see how far off I am from him, but I also see how great his grace is for me. And so I can keep running. I see how much I need him. I see how much he has called me to. If I keep running towards Christ, when I look at others and compare myself to others, I get boastful and puffed up, or I get envious and defeated. And both of those are sinful because they're really about me and they're not about Christ. Comparing to Christ leads me to sanctification, while comparing to others leads me to sin. Comparing to Christ leads me to sanctification, while comparing to others leads me to sin. So this is how we discern sinful comparison. That's the first part. Second part, then, is we need to dig up, point number two, dig up the roots of sinful comparison. Now, for this, I'm going to give you three examples, right? Three case studies, if you will. Three stories of comparison in Jesus' ministry and life. So, go to Luke chapter 18. I told you this earlier. We're going to be starting Luke 18, and we're going to look at verse 9. Here's the first story. It says, He, Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me. A sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So we got two guys, the Pharisee and the tax collector, right? And Jesus says, I'm telling this parable because there are some who were trusting in themselves and then treated others with contempt. So in other words, they were comparing themselves to other people and believing that they were more righteous than them, right? They're less righteous, they're sinners, they're the, they're the problems, we're the good ones, and they had this comparison going on that was puffing them up. And you even hear it here with the Pharisee, when he goes into, he goes into the temple to pray and listen to his prayer. Thank you, God, that I am not like these other men. Like, can you just, he's just exuding self-righteousness in the middle of his prayer. I'm pretty sure God just threw up in his mouth a little bit right there. Like, that is so crazy. And this is the first root of sinful comparison. Pride. It's pride. 
It's being puffed up in my own estimation because I'm comparing myself to other people that I think are less. But on the flip side, you have the sinner. I'm sorry, the tax collector. He said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And his approach is completely different. The tax collector, he's not comparing himself to other people. He's like, yeah, I sin, God, but you know, him, so-and-so over here, he's worse than I am. And He's just coming. He's not looking at anybody else. He's saying, God, me and you, I see you. I see how holy you are. I see how righteous you are. And God, in your presence, I am nothing but a sinner. It's just him and God. It doesn't matter what anybody else has done, good or bad. So this is between me and you, God. And he humbles himself before a perfect and holy God. Instead of doing the sinful comparison game. And sometimes, just a little side point here on this, sometimes we even come into God's presence and we're like, oh God, I'm such a sinner. And but we're still comparing ourselves to other people because we think we're a sinner because we're looking at how good we think somebody else is. Like, oh, woe is me, and I can never do anything right. And that's still pride because that's still about you and not about Jesus. So the first root of simple comparison is pride. Second one, flip back a couple chapters to Luke chapter 10. It's a few chapters back there, Luke chapter 10. I'm going to go to verse 38 for another story here. It says, Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So second story, we've got Martha and Mary, their sisters. Jesus comes to town. They want to entertain them in, the house, and in their house. So they invite him in, right? And Martha She's trying to be the good host, right? Like she's trying to prove that, man, she knows how to host and, and how to be a good, um, you know, steward to her Lord. And so she's all in and she's serving. She's running around doing all the stuff and the cooking and the preparing and making sure everybody's good. And she looks and Mary's just sitting there on the floor, just chilling with Jesus. And she gets all up in a frizz and she goes up to Jesus. She's like, Jesus, do you not see? Like, I'm running around serving and Mary's just sitting here. I tell her to get up and help me. Look at all this that I'm doing to serve you. And she's doing nothing. But look how Jesus responds to Martha's comparison. Are you picking up? He says, Martha, you are anxious and troubled. Why was she anxious and troubled? Because she was trying to prove herself to Jesus. Right? Look how good I am. Look how much I'm doing for you. Look how much I'm, I'm bringing to the table, Jesus. Like, look at all of this. It says one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion. You see, treasuring Jesus is more necessary than toiling for Jesus. 
Don't get me wrong, I love to serve the Lord, and we serve here at our, at our church. Many of you serve over and over and over again, tirelessly, and we should. But not at the expense of sitting at the feet of Jesus and treasuring him for who he is. And not to prove ourselves as if we can earn anything from God. This is the second root of simple comparison. Proving. This idea that I can, by comparing myself to others, I can prove to God that I deserve his favor more. Right? I've done more than so-and-so, and so God, you need, to, you need to put it on me right here. Look at me, God. Look at how worthy I am of your love. That is not how the gospel works. God's favor only comes by grace through faith, not by works. You can't earn it. The only thing you're proving when you do that is that you have a sinful stronghold of comparison in your heart and in your mind. So pride is the first root. Proving is the second. The third one, flip all the way to the end of the Gospel of John. Okay, so go to the other direction now in your Bible. Go to the end of John, chapter 21. Chapter 21. While you're flipping, I'm going to set the story up, okay? Because you need a little bit of lead-in for this one. So this is right at the end of Jesus' ministry. And just a, a little bit before this, um, Jesus has been arrested and it's taking off to be tried and, and, and executed. And all the disciples scatter, right? Because they're scared. And Peter ends up denying Jesus three times. Denying that he even knows Jesus three times because he's so scared that he's going to get arrested or killed or whatever. And so then Jesus is crucified. He comes back to life in the resurrection. Afterwards, he goes around. He goes, he's beating with the disciples and he's, he's seeing them after his resurrection and then he finally ends up on this beach with them, and they're having some breakfast together. And he takes Peter aside for a little talk. He says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yeah, 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 you know I love you. He says, then feed my sheep. And Jesus does that three times to mirror the three times that Peter denied him prior to his crucifixion. Just to prove, to, just to, to drive home with Peter, like, do you hear what I'm saying to you? And then he follows up that three do you love me questions with this. Look at verse 18. It says, truly, truly, this is Jesus talking, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, said to Peter, follow me. Go on, verse 20. Peter turned and saw the other disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had also leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? That's John, by the way, if you don't know that. Verse 21. Why, when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You Follow me. 
So the last comparison story I want to show you here is between Peter and John. Right? So you have this scenario here where Jesus just had this whole conversation with Peter, and he says, one day you're going to be led where you don't want to go. You're going to stretch out your hands. And that stretching out your hands phrase there is a euphemism for crucifixion. He's basically saying, there's coming a day where you're going to be crucified just like I was crucified. And Peter knew exactly what he was saying. And he gets completely freaked out. Just think about it if you're Peter for a second. You're like, what? Like, are you serious, Jesus? Like, why would you tell me that? Like, I don't want to know that. I don't want to know that that's coming for me. But Jesus always has a reason, right? Why he says what he says. So he tells him, like, there's one day that you're going to have to give your life for me. And then he follows up with, follow me. If you love me, Peter, you just said three times that you love me. If you love me, you will follow me no matter what. No matter what the cost is, and your cost is going to be your very life. That's a hard thing to hear. That's a hard calling to step into. But Christian friends, that is exactly the calling of Christianity. That's not just for Peter. That's for every single one of us. That if we are called to follow Jesus, that means that we are called to follow him in every single area of our life, surrendering everything, even if that means we have to give our lives for him. So he looks him in the eyes and he says, Peter, follow me. Right? Jesus, God in the flesh, resurrected in his glorious body, looking you in the eye, follow me. And Peter's first response is, what about John? Right? Like, if I gotta die, surely John's gotta die, because like, like he can't get off better than I get off Jesus. Like, this is, like, it's not fair, right? It's not fair if I have to walk through this and he doesn't have to walk through this. I deserve better than that, God. Have you ever said that to God? It's not fair that they get, like, why don't I get that, God? This is the third root of sinful comparison. Privilege. Privilege. Some might call it entitlement. This idea that, that because I am who I am, I deserve the best. I, I should have an easy, good life. God, you, you owe that to me. It's only fair that if they get it, I should get it. And the truth is, God owes you nothing. God owes me nothing. Because each and every one of us are sinners. We have rebelled against the God of the universe. We have discarded his teachings. We have offended his holiness time and time again. The only thing God owes us is punishment and wrath and hell. And so anything he gives us besides that is 100% grace. And that's exactly what he did when he sent Jesus Christ. He sent his own son to come and to live a perfect 
and sinless life only to turn around and give that life as a sacrifice on the cross to cover our sins. To be, stand there in our place and take the death and the, the punishment and the wrath that we deserved, that was owed to us. He put it on himself and he died in our place and he went into the grave. And three days later, he resurrected back to life to prove that he was God. And to show that he had conquered sin and he had conquered death. And to offer us, anyone who would believe, grace, forgiveness, new life with him. God doesn't owe us anything, but he gave us Jesus anyways. Look at how Jesus responds to Peter. Peter's like, what about John? Jesus says, if I want him to remain until I come back, what is that to you? That's a great question. (laughs) Let the Holy Spirit ask you that question next time you fall into some sinful comparison. What is that to you? He's not your concern. Your life, your calling, what I'm leading you to has nothing to do with him. It has only to do with you and me. You follow me, Peter. He says it again. You don't need anything that he has. You just need me. You want to look at somebody? You want to compare with somebody? Fix your eyes on Jesus. You don't need what's fair. If you got what was fair from God, it would be an eternity in hell. What you need is grace. That only comes from Jesus, not from anybody else. One of the things that um, we love to have at our house is fruit. We have fruit all, all the time. I love fruit. The girls love fruit. And one of my favorites is Granny Smith apples. You know, the green ones, right? Like, you know, the, you just chop them up a little bit, put a little peanut butter on those mugs. Man, like that is some good stuff. So I'm not much of a green thumb, but, but I do know this. If I wanted to grow me some Granny Smith apples... What soil I planted those trees on or in would be super important, right? Like if I take those apple trees out and I plant them in the middle of the sand of the Arizona desert, those things are going to die, right? Like they're not going to last very long, definitely getting no apples, like it's just not going to work. But if I plant them here in the rich, luscious soil of Missouri and give them the right care, I might give me some Granny Smith apples. Some fruit would come eventually. The same principle applies for spiritual fruit in our lives as followers of Christ. When I engage in sinful comparison, I am constantly planting my heart and my mind in the soil of pride, proving, and privilege. None of which are going to ever bear the fruit that God wants for your life. Never. Because it's not fit soil. Instead, i got to look at Christ. 
I gotta plant my mind, I gotta plant my heart in the gospel of his grace and his love and let him be the one that I'm running after. Sinful comparison reveals that my heart is rooted in sin rather than Christ and the gospel. Sinful comparison shows me, reveals to me, that my heart is rooted in these other sinful things rather than in Christ and in the gospel that he brings. And that will not go anywhere good. So we need to discern sinful comparison. We need to dig up the roots of sinful comparison. And then lastly, number three today, destroy sinful comparison. Destroy it. Remember what Paul said in Second Corinthians, right? We're not just going to damage the strongholds. We're not just going to cover them up. We are going to destroy them, tear them down till there's nothing left. So how do we do that with sinful comparison in our lives? We give you three steps. Number one, Jesus actually just told us, he just told Peter, step number one is follow Jesus. It has to start there. If you don't start there, you won't get anywhere else. We need to start thinking vertically rather than horizontally when it comes to comparison. Not anybody here, only him. Hebrews 12.2, again, it says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. If you want to grow in Christ, you have to look at Christ, no one else. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, Paul says this, He says, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. He says, when you're comparing with one another, you're missing the whole thing. You don't even understand what we're going for here because you're never going to find it from somebody else. You have to be looking to Christ for your calling and your purpose. 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul writes again, But by the grace of God, I love this, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. You, I, we are only what we are by the grace of God. God defines me. God shapes me. God makes me into who I am. Not what others think, not what others do, not what others say. It comes from the Lord. And that's why he's the only one I need to be looking at. The only one I need to be imitating. 1 Corinthians 7.17 says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. God has assigned you a life. He's assigned you a calling. He's assigned you a purpose that is unique to you. And when you start looking at everybody else and what they're doing and thinking you need to be, you miss what God has assigned you to do. Listen, God doesn't call me to be superior He calls me to be faithful. 
I don't need to be better than you. I don't need to be superior to anyone else. I just need to be faithful to the assignment and the calling that God has given me. And the same is true for you. And faithfulness only comes by following Jesus. No one else. So number one is follow Jesus. Number two, repent. This shouldn't be a surprise. We talk about repentance a lot here at Harvest. But the only way to destroy sin, any sin, is through repentance. 1 John 1, 9, right? It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the first thing we have to do is confess our sins of sinful comparison. Then when we catch ourselves doing this, when we catch ourselves putting our heart in these other soils, to confess that to the Lord and ask him to cleanse us of that and to save us from that. And so after we confess it, the second part of repentance is not just confession. We then have to turn, and we need to turn to the promises of God's word. I gave you a whole list. I'm not going to take time to go through all those scriptures, but I give you a whole list here of promises of God that you can root your identity in that has nothing to do with anybody else, just you and Jesus. Jesus chose you and appointed you, John 15, 16. God will equip you for what he's called you to do, Hebrews 13, 21. God will always provide sufficient grace for you in whatever you're walking through. 1 Corinthians 12, 9. God sees and rewards faithful and obscure labors for him. Matthew 6, 6. We just opened children's ministry back up today. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. And somebody's back there right now probably changing a diaper for Jesus, right? Like, and God sees that. And that's good work for the Lord. All of it. God assesses the heart, not outward impressiveness. 1 Samuel 6, 7. God will complete the work he began in you, Philippians 1, 6. And Jesus will always be with you, Matthew 28, 20. These are the promises that we need to fill our head and our heart with when we're walking after Jesus and stop looking at everybody else. So, Follow Jesus, repent, and lastly, number three, this is our last thing, be content. Be content. Hebrews 13, 5 says this, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, I know this verse is kind of specifically about money right here, and not all comparison is related to money. There's lots of different types of comparison, but money can be a big one sometimes. But what the Hebrews writer is saying here applies, I think, to all of our sinful comparisons, not just to a money situation. And what he says is, be content. But not just be content with money, be content with Jesus. Right? You notice that? He says, be content with whatever you have, for he has said, who has said? Jesus has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You don't need to be worried about what anybody else has because you have me. And I'm enough. And so you can be content. Similar in Philippians 4, 11 through 13, Paul says, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Here it is. I can do all things 
through him who strengthens me. We can be content with Jesus because Jesus gives us all the strength we need for everything in life. I don't need to be better than them. I don't need to prove myself against whatever they're doing. I don't need to get whatever they have. I need Jesus. That's all. And with that, I can be content. When I'm content in Jesus, I feel no desire to compare. If you catch yourself comparing to others and in this loop of sinful comparison, it's probably because at the end of the day, you're not really content with Jesus. And so you need to go back to step number one. Look and follow him. That's where the contentment comes from. Sinful comparison steals my contentment in Christ. That's where we started. And that's true, friends. But here's the great news today. It doesn't have to. We don't have to live in that. We don't have to walk in that. As much as our culture just force feeds us that idea, we don't have to be there. Moving my eyes off of others and onto Jesus, I can have everything I need and be content in him and in his grace as I follow him in sanctification. This morning, I just want to encourage you, I just want to to press you to to believe today that the only person that you need to be more like is him. It's Jesus. So look to Jesus. Keep your eyes on him. Stand with me. Let's pray. We're going to respond in worship. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you today. We thank you, God, for... Just another day to come and to celebrate and to worship, Lord, to remember the greatness of who you are and the faithfulness of who you have been to us and specifically to this church over the last four years. And God, as we celebrate today, Lord, we're not trying to look at anybody else. We're not trying to look at any other churches. We're not trying to compare our thing to anybody else's thing. God, we are just looking to you with such gratitude and love and joy, God, that you are with us and that you are working in us and through us. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your love and your grace, for selfish, prideful sinners like us. Thank you that you don't give us what we deserve. Lord, today we repent. We repent of our sinful comparison to others and we ask you to forgive us in the name of your son. Lord, we just fall on your grace and we look to Jesus as the only one that we need to follow. Lord, we believe today with our whole hearts that everything that we need is found in you and in you alone. Help us, Lord, to walk in contentment. Pray all this in Christ's wonderful name.